Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 6 Hence, the endpoint was predestined as early as the anti-Japanese war. People like Hu Xiu and Jiang Tingfu already knew very well that once China and Japan declared war, the little chance the nationalist government used to have would be gone, and the last victor would necessarily be the USSR. No matter how the individual battles were fought, China would definitely not get an upper hand over the Soviet Union. Except for the Soviet Union and Japan. No one else had any interest in the Asian continent. The United States wouldn't take Asia even if it was given to it. It would end either in the grip of Japan or of the Soviet Union. China in itself was too weak to sustain its power in Asia, especially the rule in the Northeast. Only in the era of the Beiyang government and the rule of the warlord Zhang Zuolin, China could maintain China's nominal sovereignty in the Northeast through clever diplomacy to maintain a balance of power between the Soviet Union and Japan in the Northeast and China. Chiang Kai-shek's reckless diplomacy ruined himself. In order to break Japan's direct rule in the Northeast, he first attempted to expel Japan, but due to Japan's revenge, he lost all the nominal sovereignty in the Northeast. Then, in order to retaliate against Japan, he invited the Soviet Union into the region who, after its victory, would not treat China better than Japan. Stalin's arrival in the northeast of China sealed the doom of Chiang Kai-shek's regime. Either he could let things go back to the pre-1928 state and accept that the northeast belonged to Japan then, and now it belonged to the Soviet Union. Under such circumstances, the Soviet Union might have betrayed the Chinese Communist Party, and allowed him to rule southern China. But he didn't even accept this scenario. He believed that the hard work of the eight years of the anti-Japanese war was for the sake of the Northeast. He finally defeated Japan after much toil and pain. Now to give away the land to the Soviet Union for nothing, he was really reluctant to do that. So he commanded his army to march towards the Northeast. Stalin didn't hesitate. No one else but himself would be allowed to seize the Northeast. Without Japan, it would definitely belong to him, just as Britain would never allow anyone to occupy Flanders. Chiang Kai-shek marched towards the Northeast, only to lose all his elite troops trained during the anti-Japanese war there. The Soviet Union fed the Chinese Communist Party with aid it received from the US, armament it seized from Japan the machines produced by the Soviet industrial bases and finally easily smashed the Nationalist Party. Let's not heed the nonsense about millet plus rifles, the legend about primitive equipment of the communists. The industrial and economic prowess of the Nationalist government was very weak even in 1937. After Japan's looting, the government was left with only the shabby and broken small factories in Sichuan which were not able to produce even car tires. At the end of the anti-Japanese war, every drop of gasoline, every auto part, and every tire had to be imported from as far away as India. And what was Northeast like after 10 years of construction by the Japanese?
It was the Ruhr area of the Far East, the largest industrial center in the Far East with an annual output of more than 1,000 aircraft. When Japan and the United States went to war, the U.S. focused its bombing on the Northeast. Why? Because it was the heavy industrial base of the Japanese, of much more strategic importance than locations in Kyoto, Japan. Without annihilating the Ruhr industrial zone, Nazi Germany would not have been defeated. If the Allied forces didn't blow up the industrial zone in the Northeast, Japan would not fall. The industrial output volume of this industrial zone was at least three times more than that of the entire inland of China. And the quantity was not as important as the quality. The cars and weapons produced by the heavy industry in northeast China were simply not produced in the vast inland areas of the 18 provinces. Moreover, the mainland economy had completely collapsed after the anti-Japanese war. The soldiers recruited by Chiang Kai-shek in Sichuan were all malnourished. To use a term by the Americans, they were the dregs at the bottom of the manpower barrel. According to the American draft standards, they were substandard and needed to be disqualified. And Chang hadn't even the ability to feed them properly. Under normal circumstances, the army could only eat two meals a day. For those who had performed military exploits, Chairman Chiang Kai-shek would personally issue him a note, awarding the meritorious soldier to eat three meals a day. At the same time, Japan's rule in the Northeast saw economic growth every year at the end of the war. When the Soviet Union seized the region, Japan had been engaged in strategic reserves, and the grain reserves left in the eastern part of Jilin province were sufficient for more than 10 years, not to mention the industrial strength it left behind. In addition to the trucks and weapons that the Americans gave to the Soviet Union from the European battlefields, the large number of industries left by Japan in the Northeast were all given to the Communist Party. At this time, the Nationalist Party was sanctioned by the United States again. Even if the United States had not imposed sanctions, it would not have been able to rival the Communist Party in the Northeast Industrial Zone by relying solely on sporadic imports. This war was completely tilted to one side. There was almost no doubt as to the outcome. As soon as Chang exhausted within one or two years the military resources he accumulated in the latter part of the anti-Japanese war, the war was over. And the industrial zone in the Northeast would be able to continue to produce. If the Northeast had been an independent country like Manchuria, it would have no difficulty to beat a big country like China, just as it would be no problem for Israel to defeat a big country like Egypt. One was a small industrialized country, and the other a large agricultural country without industrialization. The large agricultural country had only scattered and disorganized peasants. All that it had was crops and troops whose daily supplies couldn't be guaranteed. On the other hand, there were planes, tanks, a large number of heavy artillery, and heavy industry. Such a small number of troops can sweep the former without any problem. Chiang Kai-shek's only chance at that time was to make a deal with Stalin, like the Greek government, and through exchanges, cede the land outside the Northeast and the Great Wall to the Soviet Union and the Communist Party. Then it was not impossible for Stalin to leave the South to him because he had made a similar deal with the British. 
With the Russian army sweeping through Eastern Europe and the British army unable to intervene, it would actually have been no problem for the Soviet Union to take down entire Eastern Europe including Italy, Greece, and Turkey. In this case, Churchill could only make deals with Stalin, which is the British-Soviet percentages agreement, which resulted in that Romania and Bulgaria were absorbed into the Soviet spheres of influence, and Greece and Turkey as part of the British spheres of influence. Stalin agreed. That arrangement was not in line with the political reality of the regions affected. The Romanian Communist Party had only a few hundred members until the end of the war, carrying no political weight whatsoever locally. But because Churchill assigned this area to the Soviet Union, the Soviets airdropped these hundreds of communists to the capital Romania. In one year, just like in North Korea, a Kim Il-sung-style regime was established in Romania, as to the Greek Communist Party, after years of cultivation, it had occupied a large area except for the capital Athens and the port of Piraeus. 95% of the country was under the control of the Greek Communist Army, but since Stalin allocated this land to the United Kingdom, the British Army directly supported the entire Greek society in suppressing these guerrillas and wiped them out. After these guerrillas escaped to the Soviet Union, Stalin killed all their leaders, and the rest were exiled to the Siberian concentration camps. In this regard, Stalin was very trustworthy. Therefore, Mao Zedong was actually not sure whether Stalin would betray him. Stalin was likely to betray him, just as he had betrayed the Communist Party of East Turkestan. He wiped out the Communist Party of East Turkestan for Mao Zedong's sake, despite the fact that the East Turkestan Communist Party was originally organized by the Soviet Union. He might as well get rid of Mao Zedong for Chiang Kai-shek's sake. As long as Chiang Kai-shek would give him some benefits in the Northeast or in the North, this scenario was not impossible. Judging from Stalin's past behavior, he was a thoroughly Machiavellian realist who would not value the interests of the communist parties of other countries in the division of the sphere of influence, and he always kept his word after dividing the sphere of influence. Chiang Kai-shek, out of his nationalist mindset and greater China thinking, mistakenly rejected the only way of survival thus sealing to his own demise. His demise meant not only his own but also that of North Korea and Vietnam. Chinese civil war is classified as a Chinese revolution in our textbooks, but in the context of the Soviet Union's diplomatic strategy, it was definitely part of a bigger chess game in the Far East. The war in China mainly depended on the ownership of the Northeast, and the ownership of the Northeast was a tripartite cooperation among the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Communist Party of China, and the Workers' Party of Korea. Without the Workers' Party of Korea, the Chinese Communist General Lin Biao would certainly have suffered heavy losses even if not completely eliminated when the war was unfavorable and he was hunted down by the nationalist expeditionary forces. When the war turned against him, Lin Biao could retreat his troops to the Soviet concession in Dalian and North Korea for rest and reorganization and stage a comeback afterwards. In other words, the Communist Party of China was engaged in a transnational war. Since the Northeast War ended in the form of a transnational war as I just mentioned, after the nationalists withdrew from the mainland, since the Workers' Party of Korea made great contributions to the victory of the Chinese Communist Party in the Northeast, 
The Communist Party of China and the Workers' Party of Korea are both branches of the Communist Party of the Soviet Unions as part of a game of chess in the Far East. It can be imagined that Mao Zedong was not in a position to refuse to pay back the debt in the 1950s. When the Workers' Party of Korea suffered a defeat on the Korean Peninsula, the North Koreans could boldly demand, when your Chinese Communist Party was sustaining heavy losses in the Northeast, we saved you, otherwise you would have been beaten by Chiang Kai-shek without a way out. Now that we are beaten by the Americans and have nowhere to go for cover, we have to go to the Northeast to take refuge. Isn't this allowed? Shouldn't you pay us back? This logic was absolutely justifiable. Therefore, if you understand this premise, that the international communist movement in the 1950s was a game of chess worldwide, you will see the loopholes in the conventional historical analysis. Why is Shinji Hua's analysis incorrect? Shinji Hua is a Chinese historian. Not because he does not have enough information, but because he wants to paint the Chinese Communist Party as a ruling power with independent decision-making capabilities. He believed or pretended that Mao Zedong was like any regular national leader with the sovereignty to decide either to participate in the Korean War or not. But that was not the case. After the late 1950s, after China's heavy industrial foundation had been established, Mao gradually gained an independent position from the Soviet Union, but at the time when the Civil War just ended and the Korean War broke out, Mao was not absolutely sure that he could break away from the Soviet Union and rule independently. As real statesmen, both Mao and Stalin understood this well. In this case, no matter what he said openly, he had to participate in the Korean War. If he hadn't, it would be as good as to betray the entire communist community and himself. His own position not only within the entire international communist camp, but also within the Chinese Communist Party would be in jeopardy. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative. 